Daniel Hoffman tells us about his high school days. Across the flyleaf of my old commemorative edition of the works of Edgar Allan Poe in 10 volumes, volume one, a strong hand had written, I hate Poe, and signed my name. That hand was mine. I remember pressing the pencil so hard that the writing came through in reverse, a hieroglyph in secret code across the phonological features of the author's daguerreotype that was on the cover. And I held the book up to the mirror, seeing Poe's image in my hand and the image of his image in the image of my hand, my adolescent venom inscribed both backwards and forwards across his forehead. Young Daniel Hoffman was fascinated with Poe, surely, but with all the mirroring he had just created there, Hoffman realized that Edgar Poe, as he called him, had also mused upon his image in a glass, a mirror, with not the usual expected self-flattery, but Poe was rather interested in taking the measure of himself, searching the glass and its image for self-knowledge. It turns out that Hoffman went from high school and became a professor at Penn, and he taught classes on Poe, and he wrote a good deal about the author, who he admitted was haunting him. Hoffman's book is titled Poe, 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 to express the haunting nature of Poe's influence, but also to reflect the number of bells in the bells that Poe wrote. And Hoffman's book reveals his passion in pursuit of Poe and Poe's hold on us to this day. And in his exploring, it was just as if Hoffman was still holding up the looking glass and probing Poe and himself through that lens, through that prism. Around that time, a young explorer in our area began a journey centered in and around Edgar Allan Poe as well. And along the way, he and his fellow musicians were connecting with themselves, each other, and their audiences by bringing to life in their time, by reviving words of a 19th century writer, understanding intuitively what Poe believed about the power of music. In one essay about songs and songwriting, Poe refers to the sensations a good song can stir in a listener, sensations which bewilder while they enthrall. Many in the area knew these young musicians as the group, the El Caminos, when they found Poe, their name changed to The Glass Prism, and their story grew, becoming much more complex, building to, in storytelling terms, a climax with a persistent and unsolved mystery to boot, think of Poe and his influence on mystery and detective stories, and many years later, to Resurrection. Resurrection, perhaps the real climax, where young Tom the musician 
and Yang Po, the writer and quester, meet face to face, no longer through a glass darkly, but on stage in a rock opera titled Resurrection. As it happens, there are even more reflections, more mirroring, as a crew of documentary filmmakers became captivated by the saga of the glass prism and asked to train their lenses on the group to tell their compelling tale in a film titled On Joy and Sorrow, The Glass Prism Story. It's not just about the band, but it's a reflection of the region at a heady time in our history. The film will be broadcast on WVIA-TV this Thursday, July 7th at 8 p.m., followed at 9 by Glass Prism Live, featuring the band's big reunion concert at the Scranton Cultural Center. Tom Verano, native of the Wyoming Valley and guitarist, vocalist, and band leader, stopped in at the WVIA studios before the airing to tell us about the film. The documentary unfolded in a way that we weren't expecting. Someone came to us before we did our first reunion show in Philadelphia at the Edgar Allan Poe historic site and said, you guys have an interesting story. Let's tell it in a documentary. And since they had done documentaries, they sent me some examples of their work and I set it aside because we were more concerned with the performance than we were thinking about a documentary. But about a week before the show, I called them up and said, you know what, let's just do it. And they wanted to begin the documentary with the first show of the reunion and then do interviews in between and end the documentary at the Scranton Cultural Center show. That's where the body of the documentary came from. It included interviews with the guys in the band, people that were aware of the band and part of it, such as promoters that used us, people that hired us, and then Les Paul. Les Paul did his last interview at the Iridium with the guys that were shooting the documentary. And I called him up and said, would you do this? And he said, okay. I didn't even know if he remembered us from 1969. Are you kidding me? So when you're watching the documentary, you will see Les Paul talking about the three days that we lived with him, stayed at his house, recorded these songs with him as the engineer, co-producing, giving us ideas. And that to me is a is a key issue. But you know, the documentary, I kind of think about it. You had this thing that they started to call garage bands. Wasn't everybody a garage band at one point or another? Everybody in this area, you know, Joan Ardone and the All-Stars, Mel Wynn and the Rhythm Aces, the Avantes from Scranton. What about the little boys? The boys who went to grade school with me. The boys who would open our shows so that people could get to see them because no one knew who they were at first. But to me, it became, well, we have a lot of jobs as the El Caminos. We had more jobs than we could take. Somebody has to fill in these other dates that people were calling me for. So I would get them their first jobs. And then I brought them with us to play as an opening act and even turned Michael Wright on to them when the Timothy thing was going to happen because he was looking for someone to play Timothy. He asked the El Caminos to play Timothy. You could have been the ones to. We could have been doing Timothy, but not like Bill Kelly, for sure. But we were signed to RCA at the time he called. And I said, well, these guys are pretty good. You should meet them. And that all happened. And then we had the boys and we had the Jerry Kelly band. And then we had Dakota and those albums. 
And Louie Casa, who's in our band for five years, ends up in Dakota for part of their recordings. So it's a, it's a thing where we all get together. We're all a brotherhood in this area. You know, we want to talk about all these local bands. And I sort of, in a way, think of the documentary as, this is everybody's. You mentioned the name El Camino's. The story that is told in the documentary is about Glass Prism. Mm -hmm. So take us from those garage band days till the days when you had a national profile. Yeah. Well, the El Caminos was the first name of the band. You know, back then, bands changed their names all the time. The Beatles were the Silver Beatles. Then they went on to play with other people like Wings, or John played with the something Elephant. George played with the... Traveling Wolverines, you know, so bands go on with other people, maybe change names. So El Caminos, which was a type of car name when car names were popular, Corvettes, Cadillacs, T-Birds, all kinds of groups used names like that. So that was kind of okay. By 69, 1969, when we're doing Poe through the glass prism, we're not the glass prism yet. We're doing Edgar Allan Poe, and they said, well, you probably need to change your name. So Glass Prism made sense, and Poe Through the Glass Prism was an automatic title that just popped with the, with the name Glass Prism. So that's what we used until that era ended in 71, and we became Shenandoah, the power trio, much like Hendrix or Cream or Grand Funk Railroad or any of the other power trios that were out there. That's the direction we were going in for the next five years. And our recording sessions, one of them was with Les Paul, so that's a great thing because we're with him, we're in his house for three days, we're recording this Poe Through the Glass Prism album. And something happens, though. This documentary, there's another chapter for documentary part two when it happens. And that new chapter is, what happened? Because this question comes up a lot. What happened? You guys had a great song called The Raven. You had a great album. You had a lot of things going on. You were on the charts. It was moving up. It was chosen from magazines like Cashbox, Billboard, and Wreckin' World to be a hit. What happened? So our manager, Mort Lewis, who came to see us playing in a small place in Scranton called Tuesdays, said, yeah, let's do a demo. We, we went and did a two-song demo. Within a week, he's got RCA saying, here's a check and here's a contract. And we're going to go on tour with one of Mort's big groups that he handles, which happened to be Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We're going on tour because they're releasing Spinning Wheel, their second number one song. We're going to go on tour. Now, Mort Lewis might be, if you think of 1969, when you think of British Invasion, he might be one of the bigger managers in America, maybe the biggest, because he's got Simon and Garfunkel. He's got Dave Brubeck? you kidding me? <laughs> he's got Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He put Blood, Sweat, and Tears together with the original leader of the band, Al Cooper. They built that group. Al stepped aside when David Clayton Thomas came in. Okay, we're going on tour. So not only will RCA totally back us, but we're going to be on a major tour doing stadiums or whatever. Within a couple weeks of the release of our song, and as it's hitting the charts and moving up the charts, to get that to happen, record labels have to do something. They can't just hope it happens. They have to go around to record stores. They have to go around to radio stations. They have to advertise. They have to do a lot of investment. RCA calls up and says, well, we're going to put some of these ads on hold now because Mort left the area. He was in New York on 84th Street. That's where his office was, but he's not there. He went to Miami, we think, and he has a yacht down there. We think he's 
down there, but we can't reach him. But when we do reach him, we'll continue, and hopefully the tour goes okay. Well, Mort Lewis doesn't show up. And the year goes by, because we have a year-long contract that included two albums, and when there was 11 days left on the contract, they said, you owe us a second album, even though we can't find Mort Lewis. So we weren't prepared for a second album because we didn't know. And uh, we put together 11 songs, and one of them we, re- we wrote in the studio, but the other 10 we practiced and kind of put some things together so that we could have an, an album. And we did what we had to do because that was part of our contract. Still no Mort Lewis, but, you know, he could show up. Meanwhile, what do we know? We know that Simon and Garfunkel split up. We know that Plus Sweat and Tears don't go on tour. We know that something is going on between Mort and somebody, but we don't know who. So when the documentary is being put together, the two companies are searching, and I'm putting them in touch with Art Garfunkel and other people. Art said, I can't tell you anything. I can't put you in touch with them. So that paragraph, you know, which might be in the documentary, is still out there. However, in 2012 or 13, so someplace between 69 and 2012, this guy was. I don't know where it was. I don't know what he was doing. It was nothing in the industry. He left the industry after being maybe the top manager in America at that moment. I wrote him a letter. I sent him our new album, Resurrection. How you doing? We're still around. I sent him a copy of the documentary, and within a year he had passed. But the answer to the question of what happened is still there. He took it to his grave. He took it with him. Is there any sense you all have having been circling around Poe for as long as you did and have done that life is strange and there are mysteries that we just don't understand and maybe won't. Is there anything about the Poe Gestalt that resonates with, with you? Well, I personally, I've never felt bad about it because I was always doing what I wanted to do. Playing, writing music, hanging out with the guys. That's okay. Okay, we didn't become the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or anybody really big, but I'm contacted every day by somebody, and maybe it's not a million people or five million people, but it's somebody, and literally seven days a week, because of Facebook, we have two Facebook pages, we have a Facebook group, we have an email list of fans, and I know that a lot of these people are old fans, that's true, but a lot of them are new fans because they're seeing stuff that they didn't see before. Now, I just found out within the week, and... It's a friend, and his son opened up his computer and said, oh, you guys are on this album called Psychedelic Halloween, and you're on there. It's a compilation album with the Trogs, Wild Thing, with Iron Butterfly and Agata DeVita, and there's 22 songs on there. Your song, The Raven, is number three. Now, we've been on a lot of compilation albums that we haven't been paid for, and that's fine. It's still happening, but this is a relatively new album, that just came out, and this is happening regularly. In 2010, Banderia, which is a label out of South Korea, the owner called up, says, I specialize in taking vinyl albums, breaking them down to CDs, and re-releasing them. So Poe Through the Glass Prism on Joy and Sorrow are on Banderia. This is all over the world. You can go online. And what he did is he actually took the actual album covers exactly as they were, the back covers exactly as they were, 
For example, the back of, of Poe has all the lyrics of the songs, The Raven, El Dorado, etc. Inside, he, he used the same sleeves. Remember those sleeves were advertised? The new album by the Guess Who's coming out? It's all there, just like that. The only thing added was he had us do an interview with a guy by the name of Richie Uttenberger, the journalist writes books about the entertainment world. And he did an interview so that he could do liner notes. So we've added liner notes to both those albums. Then, within the last two years, Sony, who bought RCA, bought all their masters, called up and says, we're going to put all of your masters on every digital platform, Spotify, all that kind of stuff. So that's now happening. That includes money. And that's happening. Now, last April, just a few months ago, I get a phone call from Alex Gerson, which has a label in Spain. His specialty is vinyl albums, and he has stores that he sells these vinyl albums too that sell vinyl albums especially if they're older albums from before now for him to make a deal with sony that's still in the works so that's not done yet but why is anybody calling me about an album from 1969 or 1970 on joy and sorrow you say also that hip-hoppers and rappers are sampling your stuff too our stuff is being sampled there's a song called here you are that's been sampled it's a guitar track. It's the actual track. I don't know how they get it, but they have it. And it's played throughout the whole song as their backup. Dream Within a Dream uses a part of one of the songs. A song called Hymn is used. So they take these sections of songs that they like. There's one of the songs that's called She on Joy and Sorrow, which is from the, the album on Joy and Sorrow. They use the background music throughout the whole song, the actual recording, our vocals, our backup vocals, and some of the lyrics, even though it is a rap-type song. All this happens for whatever reason. I don't really know. People find what they like, and they use it. And if it happens to be something that we're involved in, then that's nice. You just showed your interest in lyrics that were rooted in literature, in poetry, Poe and poetry. And you assumed a kind of persona as a band that fit in with this aura of Poe. And it was narrative. It was storytelling. And so when you came back, Resurrection, you put together actually like an opera as we well, did. didn't we did. you? We did. The, the idea of Resurrection was to use some of the songs that we had already recorded and write some new songs, which we did, and, and sort of keep that Edgar Allan Poe theme. But for example, we know a little bit more about how to create songs and how to construct them. So instead of going through exactly as it was written, we rearrange things to make it fit. Now, the idea to do Resurrection as a rock opera, which we did as a cultural center, was to take that and incorporate it with some other pieces of music that could tell a story. And the story was a young guitar player is playing music and he's trying to figure out what's the melody, what's the, what's the theme, where should I go with this? And, of course, you need to be inspired by something. So over on the other side of the stage is this young Edgar Allan Poe who is, he's got lyrics, but he doesn't have the music. And so they collaborate. So in other words, we're kind of putting together what we actually did. And the storyline is actually these two people meeting musically, poetically, and developing something that we developed. That's what the story was. That was the resurrection. How do we see that part of your story as a group told in the documentary this came after the documentary so the documentary is 
kind of like the history of most bands. You get together, you know, you try to get jobs, you try to figure out what songs to play. You just want people to come and see you and enjoy what you're doing and say, oh, wow, you guys are good or something. Tell me what we're doing right. Tell me what we should do. What, what else do you want us to do? And, you know, beginning back in 1960 when we played our first jobs, I was kind of little. What do you know uh, other than, you know, Johnny Be Good and songs like What I Say. And we were playing for some older people, so we were doing standards back in those days. Stardust and Summertime and Georgia on My Mind. That's what we were doing because we were playing for older people. This was kind of pre the teen dance era. So by 62, 63, we're going to Westside Park Pavilion where they used to have big bands like the Dorsey Brothers. And the big band era is kind of fading away because our parents who like big bands and swing bands and doing jitterbug, they're now having a bunch of kids and they're not going out to these big bands anymore. So we rented this place and we started playing at the Westside Park Pavilion in Berwick and drawing hundreds of kids and the popularity is starting because now this is becoming a thing. Now there's high school dances, and there's big parties, maybe graduations. There's proms, and there's teen dances popping up in American Legions and, and all these little places like the Junior Mechanics, places where we played because you could fit a bunch of people in there, and there was a little stage. That was sort of the beginning of the garage bands, which that term wasn't out there yet, but we were garage bands. You start in the garage with three people that are saying you guys are too loud, and that's the neighbors. And then you're playing in a high school auditorium where it's bouncing off the walls, but the kids don't care. They love it. The louder, the better. Can you guys turn it up? It's okay. The only people don't like it are the teachers who are the chaperones. Maybe you wanted to come back together to play. Maybe it was originally a nostalgia thing, but you all kept growing and keep growing as artists and musicians. It's not just a nostalgia thing with you guys. It's an addiction. That's, a, that's what it is. It's an addiction. But, you know, the love of music is important. Songwriting, I'm, I'm doing that, and the other guys are doing whatever part that they want to do. But I think you, you can't not do it if it's there. It's like any, any artist who's, who's a, a painter or somebody who writes poetry or literature or whatever it might be, you, you can't not do it if that's what you do. That means you're not covering the same ground that you covered when you were kids. You've mm. been growing... And you're continuing to. That's true, but there is the foundation, the foundation of the first songs that you learned, the way you rehearsed, the way you put things together, the way you construct an arrangement. That is always going to be part of it. As, as I'm writing, for example, I'm thinking of which one of the guys is going to sing lead and how are the harmonies going to go and where are the keyboards coming in and how fast should it be or how slow should it be. Everything uh, comes around, and you hear about all these recording artists now who record a song, think of like a group like Steely Dan, for example, who would record a song with four or five different groups of musicians playing the same song until it came out the way that they were hearing it in their head. Because, you know, hearing something in your head is totally different than what comes out live. Because now you have people, human beings, that are doing something physical with their instruments. So that's just the way that some people do things the way you construct it, the way you think of it, which instruments, which musicians who have whatever kind of quality or whatever kind of style, it all has to, to come out. And I know like when I'm writing, I, for whatever reason, think of the guys. So when, for example, when you hear Rick singing lead, Rick's the drummer who doesn't actually write songs, 
I write songs that fit his style, that fit his vocal range, that he'll sound good on. That's just something that as I'm writing, I say, this is a Rick song, or this is a Louis song, or whatever it might be, just because that's the way I'm hearing it. So these guys are all part of this. You know, Rick Richards, the drummer, Louis Casa, the bass player, keyboard player. And when Augie's available, he's a singer. He's, he's a great vocalist who sings the Raven. So everybody will hear that and say, there it is. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Just some visitor I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. That's the song that was on the charts. That was the song that was number one on WARM when it was hot enough for you. And on the live show, obviously the documentary is going to be aired first, but on the live show that follows it, we're introduced by Harry West, also a legend. From Warm Radio. That's right. So you know, we had the opportunity to be part of that foundation from this area. And I think that all these groups, you know, as a person who ran a company that booked bands throughout the country and also the world. This area, for the number of people that live here, had an unbelievable talent. Number of artists that were great, good musicians, great bands. I mean, booking bands from all over the country because people call and say, will you book my band? Nothing was like what we had in this area. This area had some tremendous talent. And I, I've seen it because I've done enough work in the industry to know that at least for that market of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, this market really came out with some, some great artists. And hey, it took a while before somebody like Breaking Benjamin shows us what can be done. It isn't an accident, is it, that these bands flourished here, or is it? No, I, I think that the groups worked hard at what they were doing and developed followings, people that liked them. It's, it's a, I guess, something people need it, so they're going to fall back on it. You need to get away from a problem one way or another. You know, you, maybe you drink or maybe you do something else, but you need to have a, a moment of peace, relaxation, and something that you feel uh, in, in some way satisfies you so that you don't feel bad about how the day went that day. You have a rough day at the office or, or you know, gas is too high and we can't find all the things that we need at the grocery store. I mean, we... We can't live like that every moment. It is there, and we do have to take care of it. But meanwhile, we have to live our lives. We have families. We have kids. We have grandkids. We have to worry about these things, but we also have to relax a little bit because, you know, people do, you know, get stressed out, and, you know, that causes illness, and we, we can't have any more of that than we have to have if we have some way to break away from it. And I see it with the fans that contact us on a daily basis. I see how happy they are that you guys keep on going. We get asked all the time, when is the next show? When is the next live show? I'm just happy people ask that, whether or not I can tell them the answer. I'm happy that they're asking it. And I say, I'm glad you're asking because that tells us that there's something important about that. 
you're still writing. Yeah, and I do work with other people in the studios, which is fun because I get to incorporate their talent with what I have to offer, which is maybe I've got the whole song, maybe I have the whole arrangement, or maybe I have part of it. Maybe you need me to play some of the instruments. That's kind of fun. I get to do all of that with or without the guys, you know, and that's okay. And if I need additional musicians, I know the first guys to call. So you're open to more live shows. I would never say no to that. How could you say no to that? The feeling is the last show that we did was in September at the Theater at North, which is a beautiful theater. It was a lot of fun to do it. My family was there. My grandson was there and granddaughter. My grandson, by the way, his name is Ben. Ben's a drummer, but he isn't just any drummer. He's a real musician at the age of 14. He plays in the Binghamton Youth Symphony, which you can't get into that unless you can read and really play well. So this will be his second year. And we just saw their show that they did at Binghamton High School Auditorium, which is a beautiful 2,000-seat auditorium, gorgeous. All these young kids playing violins and violas and cellos and flutes and saxophones and every instrument, 40 or 50 kids, the ages of 13 to 17, unbelievable that they could play the way they played. This 16-year-old kid came out and played a piano solo, good as anything I've ever seen. A guy playing a violin solo, good as anything I've ever seen. And Ben takes drum lessons, but he's also a natural, unbelievable drummer. He has a natural, there are musicians who learn to become good musicians. Then there are the kind that are born that way, and that's what he is. And it's a surprise to all of us, but what can I say? He's my grandson. Have you played with him? Uh, since he was one years old. <laughs> but he realizes that I'm a rock star. He got a big kick out of it the night that he came to see us play, because that's the first time that he's seen us play. That was, that was a real nice thing to happen. Tom Verano, musician and band leader, speaking with us in anticipation of the broadcast of the documentary On Joy and Sorrow, A Glass Prism Story, directed by Sarah Fulton, Matt Lewis, and Bob Ross, this Thursday, July 7th, on WVIA-TV at 8 p.m., followed at 9 by Glass Prism Live, featuring the band's big reunion concert at the Scranton Cultural Center. There will be encore showings of both films back-to-back Friday, July 8th at 1 in the afternoon and Saturday, July 9th at 10 p.m. For more information, on the web, wvia.org, wvia.org. On Joy and Sorrow, The Glass Prism Story. And these films will be screened this Thursday, July 7th on WVIA-TV at 8 p.m., followed at 9 by the second offering, and that is Glass Prism Live, the band's big reunion concert at the Scranton Cultural Center. Encore showings Friday, July 8th at 1 and Saturday, July 9th at 10. For more information on the web, wvia.org. To find out more about the Glass Prism or to contact them, you can find them on Facebook, facebook.com slash people slash glass hyphen prism. Facebook.com slash people slash glass hyphen prism 